You're listening to Beyond the Clinic, Living Well with Melanoma, a podcast produced by Aim at Melanoma, the foundation working to end melanoma. Hosted by the Director of Cancer Survivorship for Kaiser Permanente San Francisco, Dr. Raymond Liu. Beyond the Clinic features topics seldom discussed in the exam room, but essential to patients and their families during and beyond treatment. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an aim at melanoma endorsement. Cancer research discussed in this podcast is ongoing, so the data described here may change as research progresses. Thanks for joining AIM Melanoma's Beyond the Clinic podcast series. It's my sincere joy and pleasure to be interviewing Dr. Samantha Siegel. Dr. Sam, as she likes to be known, is an internist at Kaiser Permanente, Northern California. She's been through relapsed refractory Hodgkin's lymphoma, including an autologous bone marrow transplant in June of 2022. This has made her passionate about cancer survivorship, integrative medicine, and personal narratives impacting the illness experience. She hopes to pioneer a comprehensive cancer survivorship program beginning at diagnosis to elevate the status of cancer survivorship to a distinct multidisciplinary board-certified specialty. Welcome, Sam, to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Great. Maybe you can start by telling us your unique story as, you know, as a survivor, as a caregiver, and as a primary care doctor. Yeah, gosh. it's. I think it's the confluence of all these various roles that have led up to this moment and my desire to, to become an activist in the cancer survivorship space. So yeah, I'd love to tell you a little bit about that. Well, I am a very, I'm one half of a sandwich. I have an amazing partner also named Sam, Dr. Sam, Sam Siegel. He's a pediatrician and my best friend, and we've been together quite a while. And I've known about being on the patient side of the curtain from just being his wife and his partner throughout his own medical issues. He's, he had autoimmune liver disease and inflammatory bowel disease and testicular cancer, like all all types of medical issues all throughout, throughout training. And so, you know, all throughout my medical training, we were on both sides of the curtain, learning how to be doctors, learning what it felt like when doctors say certain things, what it's like to be on the patient end of things. And so there was also a lot of stress in our medical training and, and going through that. And, and then we got through all of our medical training and Sam had liver transplant pretty much right after our residency. And, and I was working as a hospitalist and eventually I decided to go from inpatient to outpatient, become a primary care doctor. And I was really glad that I started with inpatient medicine because I think it laid a really good foundation for seeing kind of the end pathology that people kind of show up with, how people are taken care of in the hospital, sort of worst case scenarios. That was like my background foundation. And then I changed to outpatient where people present sooner, but it's kind of always carrying that perspective with me about, okay, when somebody comes in and, and they're concerned about an issue or a symptom, like my mind is immediately going to, what would I have admitted to, to the hospital for, for this symptom? So I think that was really helpful to start off my medical career on the inpatient hospital side of things. And we also did quite a lot of 
oncology in my residency training program. And we had a couple of kids and all that. After my husband's liver transplant, we had our third, our third and last. And then kind of he had to get an ileostomy bag because his inflammatory bowel disease is really acting up after his liver transplant. So just a lot. We'd been through a lot. And then things finally started calming down for us health-wise and sort of circumstances. And the, the timing of that where things were calming down for us was the first year of the pandemic. So then I just felt this immense pressure and stress and I felt everything just catching up to me emotionally. But things were actually starting to get better for us in terms of his health. And so I also felt really confused about that. Like, why am I having so much trouble coping now? Why do I feel so stressed now? Like things are finally starting to be okay. And then the pandemic hit. And then I started having all these very confusing symptoms and I didn't know how to put it all together. I thought maybe I was just really tired and burnt out, but everybody I knew was tired and burnt out in medicine. There's so much happening with, you know, how we changed delivering healthcare throughout the pandemic. And so it was, it wasn't until I really had like a rock hard lymph node above my collarbone that I was able to identify, oh shoot, I have cancer. Because I had a cough, I had fatigue, but I had a million sort of reasons for why I felt those things like the air quality and there were wildfires and I'm tired and pandemic and doctor mom life. But when I had a rapidly growing rock hard, painless lymph node above my collarbone, I knew right away that it was cancer. So yeah, that's kind of the lead up to all that. And so then I got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And at first I just thought, well, this is, you know, because a lot of people even said, this is the good cancer. This is the cancer lottery. Like if you got to have cancer, this is the one to have. And so that was sort of my approach to all of this. In the very beginning, I just thought, oh, this is just going to be like another speed bump that I have to get through. And, you know, we've been through many obstacles in our marriage and in our life. This is just going to be kind of one more thing. I'm going to check the boxes and then I'm going to move on. This is just going to be a blip. And boy, was I wrong. I crashed into the world of cancer survivorship because it was my lived experience that cancer blew my life wide open. I had so many really severe complications from treatment, including like severe glucose issues and 40 pound weight gain from steroids and severe brain dysfunction, more than chemo brain, known as chemo related cognitive impairment. And I got to the point where I finished that six months of treatment and I thought, okay, great. I, I might be able to stay alive, but I don't know if I'm ever going to be the same. I don't even know if I want to be alive at the end of this. I'm like a shadow of my former self. I'm so far away from the person that I know, that I identify as, and, and I really wasn't feeling well at the, at the end of that six months of treatment. And I went into my doctor's uh, office after I had a clean scan and she was so happy for me. I think she really meant well and everything. And she asked if I was going to go to Hawaii and celebrating. And, and I just was like, oh man, read the room. This is not celebration. <laughs> this, is not, <laughs> this is not a celebration. I feel. And I didn't know if, if I was just feeling so badly because that's just how a body feels after you've been through that much treatment or if there was something else going on. But I strongly suspected that I wasn't done with cancer yet. And within a month, I started having symptoms that were eerily reminiscent of my initial symptoms. And that time I was able to recognize them more quickly and get diagnosed with a relapse. And then I began the road to transplant, 
which included a few months of, of targeted therapy and then a bone marrow transplant last summer. And then I just finished a year of post-transplant consolidation treatment just three months ago. So I'm still putting my life back together, but I found my way to cancer survivorship through, through great struggle. You know, I started noticing care gaps throughout my experience. Like when I was on medication for pain or for nausea and then decided to wean myself off of it over a month or two, and which would throw me into this sort of massive brain chemistry shift and sort of depressive episode, which is very uncharacteristic for me. Um, I was like, well, if I'm a doctor and I kind of know what's happening to me and it's this hard and I'm feeling this badly, what do other people do? Like, this is horrible. What, do, what, what systems do we have for this? And so I started asking questions like, what are we doing for this, guys? Like asking friends in oncology. And some people told me, well, Sam, you're not like everybody else. Sometimes people stay on those medications and it goes from they're using them for physical pain and then it sort of blends into maybe it's also blunting some of the emotional pain of things, hard to identify the line there. And there's nobody kind of really guiding that process. And so people just sort of continue on these medications and ultimately it goes back to the primary care doctor and so on and so forth. And so there's no sort of real compassionate process like, hey, you might need some really strong medicines that are going to mess with your brain chemistry. You're going to need a lot of help coming off of them. That doesn't mean you're addicted. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. We're doing this to you so that you can survive the treatment and get through this massively toxic treatment. And then you're going to need help coming off of them. And we have you know, processes and symptoms and medications to help you with those transition points. And that's just one example of one of the many care gaps that I experienced and started asking about as I'm kind of slowly crawling my way back to medicine. When I found that my experience as a patient kind of offered this unique voice, you know, in medicine to sort of be a disruptor, I guess, a cancer disruptor, mm. and, and hopefully make it a little bit better for people. Like my goal in life now is to make cancer a little less painful for people and to help improve vitality in the cancer experience. And I really want to make it clear that that is irrespective of remission status. I think one thing that's really important is that vitality should be on the table for everybody, every cancer survivor, regardless of their remission status. And I think that right now, a lot of medicine likes to think of things as sort of this compartmentalized, this very linear thing like, okay, you know, once you get through treatment, then we'll talk about regaining your vitality. And I don't think it really works. I don't think that's the lived experience. One of my best friends that I met through my blood cancer support group who passed away, I was privileged enough to know her in the last year of her life and she passed away at 26. And I think she was only remission in remission about five days that I knew her. And she was the most alive person that I ever met. And I just thought, man, I think there's a lot of vitality that is left on the table for people here. And as healthcare providers, we could do a better job of helping them access that. Anyway, I've been doing a lot of talking, but. <laughs> well, I, there's so much to that story. And, you know, I just want to first thank you for the courage on, of sharing that because so many things you said, I think probably touched a lot of our listeners now and certainly touched me. I wanted to just maybe start with th something that you said in the beginning, which is the power of words. And you mentioned words like 
good cancer. And so sometimes people, for example, in melanoma think that, oh, we have all these immunotherapy now. It's it's a good, like, so the words matter. And and I want you to, to maybe talk a little bit about the words you like to use because you, you, know, you use the word vitality. And I, it's something that's really your brand. And I want to hear more about that because I think people struggle with what even survivorship means and how doctors use words. And maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, first, just on a more practical level with certain words, like I learned as a cancer patient, most people really can't stand the word journey. <laughs> and it's hard because there's not, you know, there's not always a great substitute for that. It's some, I like to say my cancer walk or my cancer experience, but journey tends to be this word that's like, bleh. So things like that, good cancer. Yeah, I think that, but vitality is something that I really want to have identified. You know, I want to have that be part of, of the legacy. I recently learned about something called meaning-centered psychotherapy. And I learned about this at this cancer survivorship conference that we both recently attended. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's based on Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And it's a type of psychotherapy for cancer patients that helps them identify how can they create or derive positive meaning even during times of great suffering? How can they get the most out of their lives? What kind of legacy do they want to leave behind? And I was so excited to learn that there's actually a name for this type of approach because I think that's what I've been trying to do on my own. And now that I know the name of it, I can more easily identify other people that are that are working um, in this capacity. But I think so much of the focus in cancer care is very importantly on not dying. And, and as patients, I think that we need help with the living part. When I looked in my, my journal throughout my cancer experience, one thing I wrote about my first week in my first early transitioning survivorship was at first I was afraid to die and then I was afraid to live. Like I got diagnosed with cancer and it was just like, oh my gosh, and, and all the death and dying. And that's immediately where my mind flashed to, even though my cancer is known to be a good prognosis cancer, I think as a young person, especially, but really at any age, you hear the word cancer and one of the first places that your brain goes is, is death and dying. So I think really looking at, at my mortality and, and my vitality, like how do I want to live, especially once I got diagnosed with my relapse, I sort of realized oh, tomorrow is not promised. And I really, I know that we all know that kind of intellectually, but I really began to feel it in the core of my being that there may not be an outcome for me that's, that's promised. And how do I want to live now? What kind of legacy do I want to demonstrate for my kids, for my fellow doctors, people in the healthcare community about living after a diagnosis of cancer. And so now I do all types of out-of-the-box things. Like I I don't walk to school with my daughter. We dance to school. <laughs> As dancing became a really important part of, of my neurologic recovery, actually. You know, dancing and art and music became a really important part of my neurologic recovery. And I think once I shifted away from just sitting at the computer and looking at books and willing myself to just think harder and get better... And I started finding different forms of personal expression, artistic expression through like music, playing guitar, painting, dancing. My brain started to heal. I began to think again. And I think that there's a lot of tools 
that are available to people. And, and that's all part of vitality and the cancer experience. Like even, yeah, my friend Tati, she loved to, to do art. She did art in the hospital. And so I just, I think that there's more that we can do for people that has, that can help them with their function and connection while they're going through cancer. I, you know, you mentioned being afraid to live and I, I just thought it through like vitality is living, living is healing and all those feelings that, that you're trying to hold together at the same time, right? You, like you're, oh, you're finished with treatment. That's when you can start living, but no living starts from the beginning. Vitality starts from the beginning and it's, it's okay, right? Because I think it's the whole thing that we tell ourselves the story, right? So maybe because that's what I was hearing from you. Like you, you were trying to think like, what should you be thinking? There was a lot of this like talking self-talk initially. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I realized when I got to these various uh, goalposts, you know, the end of my six months of ABVD or even the end of treatment three months ago is that I realized it's kind of never over. And not everybody has the same experience like spiritually emotionally where they want to really strongly identify with their cancer some people just get through it and they don't ever want to think about that or identify with it again but i think a lot of people that i have spoken with i know me i don't think i'll ever be the same like there is no end to it for me i will always be somebody who has gone through two and a half years of cancer treatment my body sort of has different sensations now. I have scars on my body. I operate differently. I think differently than before all this happened, before I really looked at my mortality this closely. And so I think that even though we'd love to say that, yep, you're done and you're you're in remission, we're putting a bow on it and no evidence of disease and, you know, go, happy you go on living with the rest of your life. I think that the failure to recognize fully what people really go through physically, emotionally, spiritually in dealing with cancer, even if they have a cancer where they'll be able to go into long-term remission or cure, is increases the suffering that people have to face, the isolation and the suffering, because we make it seem like, okay, you've reached this endpoint and now you're good. Like, what, why are you so upset? You're one of the ones who gets to live. And I think people have this whole, you know, complexity of emotions like well I still have a lot of symptoms I'm dealing with the fallout of treatment I have I have heart complications lung complications my sex drive is gone I have horrible neuropathy and and so I can't play guitar anymore you know there's so many ways that cancer treatment can impact people's lives and I think that's all got to be part of the conversation well I think you also mentioned that you know I think it, it's true. I think medicine thinks about it more as a linear thing where it's like one step at a time and it's like you got to hold everything off because of the treatment. And I think what you're trying to do is create a new model of medicine, right? You're trying to say, hey, no, we, we can live while it doesn't have to be linear. It does, you, you can start working through those things. And that's what you're, you want to do with your specialty, right? This new. Absolutely. My dream is to build a cancer survivorship program or system that is longitudinal survivorship beginning a diagnosis. So cancer survivorship is defined as anybody living after a cancer diagnosis. But one thing that I noticed when I started coming back as a provider and taking place in these meetings was that there was really a huge gap between the way that it's defined and the way that it's practiced. I noticed that the few kind of areas where we have people doing survivorship, even in our organization and a lot of other organizations, it really it tends to be focused on a few main cancers, a lot of, a lot of breast. I think that's because that there are large numbers of patients that are impacted by breast cancer. 
And a lot of the programs are after treatment, like survivorship in terms of how it's practiced is often begun after treatment. And so I just thought, well, gosh, this is, there's like a huge gap of people that this leaves out. What about all the other cancers? And I think if we're only starting to talk about the survivorship tools at the end of treatment, like the ship has sailed already for a lot of people. They may already be deep in mental health issues, deep in financial toxicity and familial strife, deep in the you know other side effects that they're having. And they may have really benefited from the tools that I think of as being associated with survivorship if we started talking about them early on. And a lot of the argument that hear that you hear against that is people say, oh, well, you know, we can't talk to patient about patients about that in the beginning. They're going to be too overwhelmed and they're not going to want to hear all that. They just want to sort of get through the initial part of it. And sure, I, I get that. I was really overwhelmed in the beginning. It's like drinking from a fire hose when they start telling, oh, you need a port and you have like 15 appointments and all this stuff. But I think that even just planting the seeds, like an initial appointment with somebody who is a survivorship clinician who says, hey, so you've just been diagnosed with cancer. Now what? I am the person who's going to help walk this walk with you. I'm going to manage your blood pressure. We're going to look at your other metabolic factors like your hemoglobin A1C and your, you know, and your weight management and, you know, liver enzyme, all, the, all these things. We're going to talk about your diet. We're going to talk about your exercise. We're going to do treatment-focused prevention strategies, meaning like if I know that I'm going to give you anthracyclines or other medications that are toxic to your heart, heart and lung system or chest wall radiation in the area of your heart, like, let's not wait to talk to you about heart disease till you have heart disease. Like, let's talk about it right in the beginning. And so maybe can we not only reduce your chances later on, but maybe the way that we teach you how to live by talking about survivorship in the very beginning helps mitigate the toxicity of treatment as you go through it. Maybe you have less neuropathy because your blood sugar is better controlled. Maybe if we talk to you about movement, you have less depression during treatment because exercise helps improve mood and mindset. And so I think just planting the seeds early on, and some people I think will hear that conversation and will go, yeah, that's a little much for me. I, I don't know if I can do that. And that's fine. But I think some people might hear that and then later on, remember, oh, wait, hey, there was that thing, the survivorship thing. Like, wait a minute. And then we can revisit that throughout treatment longitudinally as people go along and kind of share the care with the oncology team. And I also believe that not only will this be better for patients to have one other person on their team, a medical provider who understands what they're going through and sees them throughout I think that oncologists will feel less alone having to bear the the weight of all of the care because oncologists now become like primary care doctors. They just take care of everything and the patients really like feel really close and bonded with them. And so I've seen so many instances where hemonc doctors are doing care that's like definitely primary care. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the patients are afraid to move away from them. And the oncologists are also justifiably concerned about how other people are going to treat their patients. Because once cancer is on the chart or cancer treatment, patients get weird care. Like people are sort of afraid of them or they don't really know if it's okay to give certain therapies. Like I've seen this all throughout COVID where 
cancer patients that I knew of, you know, wound up in in the ER because people really weren't sure about whether or not they could be given certain medications while they're on cancer treatment. And it was more of like a lack of knowledge and training than it was that the patient really needed to be in the emergency room. So I think there's just so many opportunities for longitudinal survivorship starting a diagnosis. Well, and I think what you mentioned with prevention is is a uniquely primary care concept, right? Like oncologists are sort of like, we come in after the diagnosis, which is almost almost this concept of being reactive to something that already happened. Whereas, you know, primary care is sort of like, how do I prevent you from getting nausea? How do you pre- So it's more like, instead of reacting when you get nausea and you already, you know, lost 10 pounds, how do we prevent you from getting there in the first place? And that that's also where in this concept of integrative care, right? Where you're just thinking about things early. What are the things you can do while you're getting treatment or even before to get yourself stronger? It all ties in together. And so it's a primary care concept, right? It is. And I love that you dropped the word integrative just now because I want to <laughs> I give a shout out to integrative medicine. I think Society of Integrative Oncology just this week released something. It may be in conjunction with ASCO. I'd have to double check that, but about mental health in cancer treatment hmm. and the importance of aggressive screening and mental health uh, care throughout cancer treatment. And I love that. And I think that there's a lot of other opportunities for integrative oncology to improve people's outcomes and their quality of life. Like if we take better care of people as, as whole people and what they're going through, not just their labs or their scans, but really whole people with their symptoms, I think more, you know, I think people will be more likely to to get through their treatments, to finish them, to have less symptom burden as they're going through them. And I think it's really important to have a qualified group of healthcare providers that understand like, well, can you get acupuncture for this? Or is massage okay? What types of exercise can you do when you have multiple myeloma and you don't want to get spinal fractures? You know, what types of diet, like is juicing or strategic fasting around the time of chemotherapy infusions, will that reduce your nausea that you have or improve the efficacy of your chemo? I could think there are some really important aspects and integrative medicine or integrative oncology, I think is a, a really good uh, group of providers to help address some of those questions. And I think that there's going to be a lot from them in the future. I still think there's a lot of misconceptions about what integrative medicine is. I think people sometimes conflate certain subsets of what integrative medicine covers, but it's really just a term that encompasses all care, including Western allopathic medicine, but it also includes complementary and alternative modalities like yoga and lifestyle medicine and functional medicine and acupuncture and qigong and breathwork and Tai Chi and all these other other practices. And an integrative medicine provider has to know about all the things. And their goal is to help provide patients with the highest level of evidence of care that will be personally and culturally meaningful to that individual. Because sometimes there's not always a randomized, you know, double-blind placebo-controlled trial for every single intervention that we want to do, you know, for for this type of exercise or that type of acupuncture herb. But we want to we want to honor people's backgrounds, their cultures, and 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 give them an opening to be honest about what they're thinking about doing, and then really be able to advise them without judgment about whether it's safe, what we know about its efficacy, or what we don't know. 
just so that people feel, you know, less afraid or less stigmatized. I think people still don't like to admit a lot of things that they may be doing to their oncologists, like herbs they might be taking or other things that they're doing because they're they're afraid of how it will be, how it will be addressed. So, yeah. Well, Sam, I, I, these these podcasts always go so fast, but in particular, this one did because you know you've had so many, so much to to give to this cancer community, and I, I, I want to just I know we have to close it out, but it's so hard to summarize it because you've discussed vitality, you've discussed passion, and and how do we integrate our lives with with you know all these things that are happening, the concepts of primary care, and and how personal journeys can 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 you know be very powerful sort of ways to, for us to understand, understand what people are going through. So help me close it out. Like what, you know, what, what, so tell me, like, is there a single story or something that, you know, can help us understand this? It's a lot. Yeah. I just, I think it's really important for us to help people look at their cancer, be able to examine whether or not cancer can be an opening in their lives to address certain things or to make a pivot I know for me, cancer is cancer is my opportunity to to sort of pivot professionally, to apply everything that I've learned in the hospital as a caregiver for my husband, as a patient, as a primary care doctor, as somebody who's doing integrative medicine fellowship right now, to apply all these things to help improve the lives of cancer survivors. And I see my background training as a human, as a doctor, a- as an advocate, all is sort of one piece. I think that empowering patients is a huge part of the conversation. Like I would love to see in terms of how we help people put themselves together after a cancer diagnosis and to recover from treatment. I would love to help us connect patients a little bit better to other patients, to organizations where they can think about how can I connect with other people to use my experience to help somebody else feel better because I think I know that really helped it to helped me to lift myself out of the doldrums at various points was to connect with other people. And I just think I know that I'm on the right track with all this cancer survivorship stuff because other patients keep telling me that I'm awesome and other doctors keep other doctors keep telling me how to behave. <laughs> you know, <laughs> saying like that's not survivorship. Or that's not that's not what we typically do. And I just keep saying, well, why not? You know, and so I think I feel like it's it's struck a nerve, and that response tells me mirrors back to me that I think we're onto something here. I think this is really big, and I believe strongly. This is the story that I've written for myself that this cancer happened at this time in my life, in my medical career, and in the international community when survivorship is really taking off, so that I could help be a conduit for this powerful message about vitality and cancer and survivorship and um, providing good care for everybody from diagnosis to death, however long that is. Dr. Sam, it is such an honor to be a colleague of yours, but also to just be on this podcast and, and um, listening to, to the wisdom you're bringing to us as a lived experience and, and as, a, as a provider yourself. So thank you. Thank you for your, your gift of time to us and um, can't wait for our next conversation. Thanks for having me. For more information on this topic, please visit aimandmelanoma.org. If this podcast was useful, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Google Play, or Spotify. This podcast offers insight into the world of melanoma care, covering a range of educational, inspirational, and scientific content. 
You can find all shows, including this one, at aimatmelanoma.org. Aim at Melanoma is a global foundation dedicated to finding more effective treatments and ultimately the cure for melanoma 